Hello and welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for our New Year's Eve special. Seeing in the, or celebrating the end of 2020, the year so good they named it twice. I know you'd probably rather be out there partying and having fun, but for those of you that aren't allowed to this year, like us, the next best thing is to spend the next couple of hours listening to Rob Duncan, David Noble, Alex Pillow, and I chatting about RegTech. We're going to be ruminating on... Um, some of the big events of the year and where we see the market going and generally having a, a good old chinwag. So um, uh, I hope you enjoy. I think we're going to begin by looking at the numbers. Market size expected to grow from $6.3 billion this year to $16 billion by 2025. Uh, that's a compound annual growth rate of 20% year on year. Need to get me some of that. Sounds right, doesn't it? <laughs> My boss would be happy with a slice of that. I think we all would. Rising rising tide lifts all boats, so maybe those firm numbers will grow for a little while. I think I think they probably will. Um, So, uh, and then some of the the fundraising done this year, we've got one trust, one of the more recent ones, raised three hundred million Series C, which values them at a whopping five point one billion dollars. Well, they've been, and if I'm totally honest, I hadn't heard of them until (laughs) maybe three or four, literally three or four months ago. Yeah. Around September. um, And that was through conversation with someone else and looked them up on their website. And it looked like they focused very heavily on data protection. Um, And then, I don't know, when when was it? November that that came out? Yeah, I think so. uh, Evaluation. Yeah. Uh, And I think actually, if you look into them, they've, they've only actually been going three or four years. So, They've grown at phenomenal speed. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that that might be something we need to to talk about, understanding that a little bit more. And, and I don't have the answers, but but there are some interesting uh, things about some of these companies that are getting the big valuations. So um, Verifin acquired by NASDAQ for $2.8 billion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that's, um, you know, that that's really, you know, really, really, Again, huge. Um, I mean, again, Verifin are, are a company that I've you know I've been aware of um, loosely, but not particularly closely because they're, they're sort of I think more more in the fraud space, which isn't something I've sort of historically been been close to. But um, it's interesting, you know. I was just looking at some of this last night, and uh, um, Mika at uh at um experian mika Wilbrand, i remember you know posted on linkedin um at the time you know he, he maybe knows them better than than i do certainly and, and he was sort of suggesting that uh you know the interesting thing to wait and see about that was um the extent to which nasdaq can scale verifin to uh to sort of go after the the much larger institutions um, you know, he was sort of suggesting that, um, you know, Verifin had sort of really owned the sub $1 billion in assets sort of class, you know, in, in the US and Canada. But, you know, you know, the he says the Queen always questions around whether it could handle the larger than $10 billion institutions. Um, so, you know, that, that and the only reason I sort of picked that up is because I think that's quite a sort of a, maybe a common theme in these in these acquisitions, you know, how do they, 
you know how do you take that to how do you scale that how do you sort of um you know um really move and move a business like that forward and i suppose ultimately get a return on the investment right yeah but is that is that why they happen so if someone like verifin has a an almost monopoly on that um billion dollar uh and below market um and a lot of these companies obviously do struggle to uh, step up into the um like the tier one space being part of nasdaq surely got to help that hasn't it because they're already working with them all yeah, you'd, you'd like you'd like to think so. You'd like to think so. If you're if you if you're Nasdaq, you'd be you'd be thinking that. I'm sure. Perhaps perhaps that's the model. So we have another one here. This is a, a another large one, resulting in a, a billion dollar plus valuation. Chainalysis Series C, one hundred million dollars. Yeah, all of, all of these are interesting. Chainalysis, Elliptic are probably their nearest counterpart. Yeah, kind of a two player market from everything I've been able to tell of it. So. Yeah, if, you know, if you're a VC and you want to get in somehow to this general space and it's it's an option, then then why not? I, with all of these, the valuations I pay no attention to because they're completely, it doesn't tell us their revenue, it doesn't tell us their margin, it doesn't tell us anything real. It just tells us that one VC, product equity fund or executive at a large company thinks that they can do something with these guys and then sell it to the next guy for more than that. Doesn't doesn't actually have to be real money. It just can I make someone else that feel it's going to be again a future bet. So it's, I mean it's all bets. So it's it's good that money comes into the space because there's loads of work to do. Um, probably get onto the fines later, but we're still not particularly effective in terms of practitioners or the people that try to help them, um, given the amount of failings that are brought up every year. But yeah, ch- ch- analysis. You know, if crypto is going to become a bigger thing. Then you're going to need tools that can look at it and try to try to make it as safe as possible to to work with. So um, makes you know, a degree of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Heavily caveated. Um, so uh, another billion dollar plus valuation, I think, is Forter, F O R T E R dot com. Now, who who has heard of them before here? I will confess, no, never. <laughs> Tumbleweed. No, I must admit, I hadn't heard of them either. Yeah. So, uh, so that all sounds very reasonable. So fraud, only so fraud, the only fraud prevention platform powered by the largest network of online retailers. Mm. There you go. That was a series, uh, series E. So they've obviously uh, been knocking around well, for a bit, haven't they? I think it's interesting because if you go with uh, Alex's idea that that maybe the, you know the valuations are based on you know a bet that. Um, these firms can kind of hit these big revenue targets and, and they can take the lion's share of their marketplace. Those with the big valuations are in the fraud space. So they're in areas where there is, you know, all around the world, huge focus now, uh, particularly for combating online fraud. I think, yeah. you know, with the environment we're in right now and the, you know, the continue, continued explosion of e-commerce, then clearly, you know, fraud is a fraud is a massive threat now, um, uh, more so than ever. So I think perhaps, you know, we're just looking at kind of the next wave of, of, of compliance um, uh, organisations that are moving into you know this kind of fraud space where clearly that there's a big need for it. Um, there's going to be a need for solutions to you know combat um, some of these challenges where it's not they're not necessarily i mean you might argue that these aren't necessarily nice to have tools really you know these are as essential as 
you know, sanction screening. You know, you, you need to be able to ensure that your customers aren't being ripped off online. You need to be able to ensure that, you know, your systems and controls are adequate enough to stop someone kind of coming in and stealing data from your organization. Because in the end, it really will put you out of business. It will cost you um, not just fines, but, you know, it's going to cost you your customer base, essentially. So it's the, the ultimate in protecting your business, perhaps. Maybe yeah. that's what's kind of driving this now. I was just going to mention the last two, Comply Vantage and Quantexa, which I know we all know well because we know some of the guys behind them very well. Um, Series C, circa, I think it was like $55, $60 million a piece, wasn't it? And, and, and the thing that's interesting about those last two, unlike all of the others, and one of the things I was going to mention, is that those last two are UK headquarters, aren't they? And all of the others were in the US. Mm. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's a, a trend there that um, that is behind some of these big valuations. So what I what I would suggest is a lot of the reg techs they they follow on the wave of fintechs, mm. the banks, and they use what they use and they do what they do. They change it every so often, but it's it's rare that something revolutionary happens. In London, you know, London was sort of the place for fintechs, say twenty. 15, 2016, 2017, perhaps. And they, they started going and the VCs put the money in there. They then found that, hey, we need to do things a little bit differently for any of our models to work. So a bunch of reg techs have, you know, are then uh, great to try and service those needs. And it's a much easier market to get into than traditional financial services. Sales cycles can be short. You can meet the founders or the CEOs or whoever a lot more easily. There's no committees to go through. And so we've had that. And London's had its reg techs. Meanwhile, America's fintech scene took a little while to catch up to London's, but it's a much bigger market, as we all know. There's way more cash on both coasts. Um, and the probably, or I, my, my best guess would be they're just having the same effect. It's they've had all this stuff. They want, they want some reg tech solutions. They want to buy from people that are in the States rather than in London, most probably, like, like most, most countries or most companies seem to prefer to buy from someone that is in-country. Um, so they're going to have a bunch of reg techs that, you know, some of them are going to reinvent the wheel. Some of them are going to hopefully do something new. Um, and you've just got to wait for it to play out. That would be my, my best guess. Um, and the VCs would have gone from the fintechs, funded a bunch of them. Now they'll fund the reg techs and try and see how they can create that market and you know, one or two unicorns that they can make their fund work from. Yeah. I, w I wonder if, 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 if another point there is, is perhaps um you know and it's i'm sure it's something that we've all bumped up against in in in, in our various um roles and, and, and positions is the um obviously the way the way in which you know simply geographically put you know here here in london or or, or in europe anyway you know there is a requirement obviously to meet lots of different types of regulation uh you know, and and in and in many different languages, in 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 so far as that matters, um, you know, the US is is you know obviously you know, big common block with, you know, one one set of regulations perhaps in one language, um, and I wonder if that has meant that you know development has been more dynamic here. Um, I mean, I, I I mean that perhaps seems the wrong way around. You'd, you'd think it would be the other way around, but. I wonder if the need if the need to be across a broader range of regulations um, sort of fosters, you know, greater and quicker moves in 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 this space. I don't know. 
says in it's 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 um, counterintuitive, as in it's harder to do business, therefore it's better for reg tech. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, I suppose that's what I'm saying is that there's more, because, there's more yeah. opportunity perhaps for, for these organizations to, to help people because they, you know, it's, it's more complicated to get <laughs> yeah. across, you know, to get across I, all those different regs. I, I think, I think possibly it's also a case, uh, a case of um, just being compliant has, has got to the point where it's, it's very complex now. It's a very you know, whatever business you're in, and, and and really, if you're tier one, tier two, you're tier three, and once you look at the US, where you're operating across the whole United States or just in a state, you know, you you still have quite a lot of complication involved in understanding regulations, applying them within your business, developing policy, and all the rest of it. Um, so I wonder if actually this is more of a, a an efficiency play. You know, the the tools and the software and uh, all these solutions that are coming onto the market and have been available in the market are now being taken up because actually it enables uh, a much more effective, more efficient means of uh, staying compliant. You know, the, the days are kind of trying to get past with the best you can do on Excel and you know, Word and emailing stuff around. It's kind of, it's just completely done now because it's just way too complex for you to be able to do that too time consuming and ultimately it's going to cost you know revenue in the end so yeah. i wonder if that that's a big driver for it now you know the, well, the I mean, complexity is kind of taking us down this route you'd think so Dave. i mean and that and that's certainly what we would be saying to our customers right but i mean every day we see organizations who you know are running their background checks through google and um, holding stuff on spreadsheets and you know and every day we we read about cases where you know that lack of sort of common systems or or, or a common approach is, is is causing is causing problems mm. and then sort of ultimately a lack of compliance and then fines and and, and all the rest of it but and I mean I you know I don't know how long that might take to change you know in some of these organizations that are so massive and and where the organization is a result of acquisitions itself you know it's, it's sort of you know whether it's sort of the hsbc's yeah. of this world you know that the bought up businesses all over the place that are all running different systems and then you know you're, you're trying to bring all of those together um it might be it might be some time yet before we see those organizations actually applying you know a common system and common standards across yeah yeah, yeah. and you're right i Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I, can't, I sensed myself moving to sales pitch mode there. So. <laughs> <laughs> that. But it's because you're such a natural day. <laughs> so, yeah. do, do, do you think compliance people <laughs> listening to us talk just think we're a bunch of jackasses sort of talking to one another about stuff that they don't think about? Wait, to a, to a large extent, I think, yes, Tom. I think, I think there's, there's, um, it's something I'm very conscious of and have been very conscious you know, throughout my time working in the space is that, you know, I'm trying to talk to people who, you know, are practitioners and live and breathe what they do. And I'm waltzing in there trying to tell them that, you know, I've got this solution, which is going to transform their life. Um, you know, uh, when it, when in reality, you know, my understanding of what they do is uh, not limited, but, um, you know, not, not, not um, all encompassing by any, by any means. And I think, yeah, there's a certain amount of us sitting around to say, talking about what we think is good for the industry when when uh you know practitioners might have a might have a very different view i would say it goes both ways though right like you've just mentioned you know and lived it as well i mean i've seen some fantastic spreadsheets 
but they are still just spreadsheets. And if you're running your risk assessments on them or some other process, then probably shows that you don't, you've not even had the time or you don't have the expertise or you've not had the support, it could be any mm-hmm. of those or, or a combination of them to go and put in place something smarter. And actually the way that you're going to learn about that is to go and talk to vendors who live and breathe the tech mm. of yeah. the job. Um, it's so very true. There's probably some halfway house, but I've certainly, you know, for most of the last five years have sold some version of screening, mm. reading ongoing monitoring, and I've sp- spoken to many very experienced people who ask some really basic questions. And that's no, you know, it's good that they ask these questions because if you don't know something you should ask. Um, but because they've got so much going on, you, they kind of need to rely on the vendors for the experts. You know, I've spoken to a lot of consultants <laughs> that are doing the consultant, but ask some pretty basic questions. Hmm. So I, I, yeah. I just say that we shouldn't be too critical because hopefully if we are putting out honest information, which, you know, I think hmm. everyone would, just our thoughts, and there, there might be something there for everyone. But um, unfortunately, there's probably a bunch of waffle as well. So apologies to the, the audience, whoever they are. Well, I think if you if you take the view that most organisations will be, they will have some process, they will have processes in place to make sure that they're compliant with regulation. They might not be great and they might not be very efficient, but it will do the job. And I think that our job is to kind of come in and actually offer you know, a, a better, a better approach, a better, more effective, more efficient means of doing that. And I think nowadays where um, as we said earlier, you know, things have become so complex and that's really our, I think that's the value that we bring is that, that all these solutions on the market, when you look at all of them, in the end, that they, they are a, a means to maintain compliance at a more efficient level. And in most cases, it means you don't have to go, continue to hire more and more staff. You can do things you know, faster, yeah. um, hopefully cheaper as well. Yeah. I, think that's I mean, I, I remember the uh, the cartoon of what, what is it? The two cavemen pushing their car along with square wheels. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, some, yeah. somebody's running behind them saying, hey, look, you know, why don't you buy this round wheel? And they're saying, no, 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 too busy, too busy. Haven't got yeah, time. That's it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of that in it. You know, they're, they're extremely, you know, pressured. They're extremely busy. Um, budgets are stretched. And, uh, you know, if as you say, if what they've got, you know, is doing the job, then, um, you know, it can be difficult to get time and resources allocated to uh, to looking at something new. I think that's the question, Rob. Is it, is it doing the job? You know, and then what is the job? Is the job to be compliant? You know, if your title is head of compliance, and arguably yes then you can go down a whole rabbit hole of is that actually the right thing should it be regulators going get here and it's everything's okay or should it be a regulation that is more you know the principle is you need to do the absolute best you can mm. and straight that and demonstrate. well i mean we were yeah again a very a very yeah. good point and I, I, I was looking at some things last night and i wonder if we, we might get onto this perhaps if we start talking about the fincen stuff um because you know there's obviously a lot flying around after that and and uh you know a lot of suggestion that you know well hang on a second why why is it the banks all of a sudden that are responsible for policing this stuff you know we get you sort of come back to the age-old you know that age-old nugget of well you know what 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 is you know what is the job of the of the team in the bank is it to remain compliant with the regulations as they are or is it to you know uh blankly prevent financial crime you know i mean what and, and I don't know that anybody really knows that. You know, that's a sort of a subject of great debate often. 
I think you can have an opinion, but that's probably all it can be. No, no right or wrongs. <laughs> it does seem as though if your ultimate goal as a government was to stop financial crime, there are some other fairly substantial things you could do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I, I bang on a lot about um, Oliver Bullo, um, the, the journalist whose who's excellent book, if you've not read it, Moneyland, is, is, is well, worth, well worth a read. But um, he also writes for a, for a sort of a weekly uh, a weekly blog called Coda Story, and uh, I remember at the time, you know, he 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 put out a very thoughtful piece about it, and and uh, about the FinCEN leaks, I mean, and 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 sort of saying, look, you know, um, <laughs> you know, he he, I, I don't want to misquote him, but you know, sort of paraphrasing, he said something like, um, uh, you know, far be it from him to sort of not want to bash the banks, you know, he didn't he didn't mind that so much, but. Um, you know, was 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 this the the right thing to be doing? You know, when you look at, you know, the the the, the, the sort of the political climate that we're living in and what our governments are and are not doing, you know, and as you as you say, you know, where does the where does the fault or the responsibility actually lie? Does it lie with the institution or does it lie with the, you know, with with the environment that they're that they're trying to operate in? In so in the way I'd, I'd actually put together like a sort of little internal deck. I don't think I actually ended up ever taking it to any customers because I was like, this is far too left field for, for most of the folks I was talking to. But I was reading about game theory at the time when actually you can apply this to, to compliance, right? You've got the, at the moment, I'd argue most banks play the finite games. So they go, right, our job is to get to the level set by the regulation. If we do that, that's it, game over. Don't do anything else. Just stay as we are until we're told you've done something wrong, you're not meeting it, or a new regulation comes out and then we go again and we play that game until we're compliant, regardless of whether it's the best we can do or it's the most efficient we can do, et cetera. Arguably, and it takes the government to actually make the game, change the game, but it should be criminals are doing this or illicit actors, bad actors, whatever we want to call them. Um, so we're going to adapt to that and we're going to try and beat them and then the regulator should bring up the rear and go, right, anyone who's not doing that, we're going to kick you along and keep bringing you up to a minimum standard. But the, the best in the world should be the ones that have, they're already getting all the data, they're already seeing all the transactions, how they can then spot what the illicit element is doing and then shut those doors and keep closing them off. And it's obviously it is a game of whack-a-mole because if you're a motivated criminal, you'll just keep going until you find a way. But that, if you accept the game is never over and your team's job, your compliance team's job, anti-financial crime, whatever you want to call it, um, is to come in and go, right, what, what popped up yesterday? How do, and then how do we stop it? And how do we design around that and go again and go again? It's a completely different mindset. Um, that would be the you know, utopia, in my opinion. I think that's the best you could get to. And then accept, hey, well, look, there's still going to be crime because there's some really clever people that spend their lives doing that. Um, but that mindset, I would argue, would minimise it. But you need a government to legislate for it. You need the regulator, the motivator to regulate that way. You need banks and other actors in the private sector to go, yeah, that actually is a better idea. And arguably, to your point earlier, loads of money going into fraud. If it reduces the amount of fraud, it should benefit there because they're losing less of their own money. Um, mm -hmm. But fines and all those sorts of costs. But actually, they're not being stolen from if more of these guys feel they can't attack the system because too many doors have been closed. I mean, I wonder if that, I mean, that sort of what you, 
what you talk about there is that you know okay we've reached the we've reached the bar let's go again okay is everyone is everyone here let's go I, I wonder if that happens automatically or naturally or organically to any to any extent um the only reason i say that is is you know a, a senior compliance um uh, an individual senior individual within compliance in one of the one of the big banks in london you know was talking to me recently and said you know that that, that his his organization had uh had managed to steer clear, you know, of a lot of the a lot of the trouble recently, um, and and so he was almost expecting that if they didn't up their game, uh, you know, you know, uh, in the near future, you know, he felt that they would be next. So he sort of felt this sort of debt, you know, there was a there was mm. a sort of deficit. You know, he, he very well networked kind of guy, and and you know knew a lot of his peers in the other banks and what they were doing and not doing, and he could see that his own organisation was perhaps falling a bit behind, and I I think felt you know the ground shifting a bit, and so was 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 making efforts to convince his sort of middle and senior management that they needed to do more in order to avoid you know the the the, uh, the you know that whack a mole you know the, the regulator coming around and going right you know we haven't done you for a while. <laughs> So you know, we'll have a, we'll have a go at you. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much of that, you know, sort of actually actually comes to pass. But um, mm. but you know that 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 idea of well, look, okay, um, you know, these guys are doing this now, right? Well, everyone should be doing that, and 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 that's interesting. Maybe how that ties back into the conversation we were having a little earlier about all of these new reg techs coming on board. You know, a reg tech finds a new way of doing something or a new builds a new data set out or and then a couple of institutions start to adopt that solution or that data set. And, oh, right. OK, well, then and then the regulator gets wind of it and then suddenly expects everybody to do it. And, you know, so I wonder I wonder if that no, works. I think it happens. I think it happens a lot slower than the, I think by the time it's, it's actually there, the the bad actors, the criminal element has already moved on. So you're so far behind the curve um, when you wait for the regulator to go and find someone to then get people worried enough to look mm. or, or whatever, that you need people to practically do it. But that actually goes outside of the compliance community. That is more talking to their CEOs, CFOs, COOs and going, are you going to give a budget to do business safely or are you going to give a budget to be compliant to the most recent fine? Because those are two very different numbers. Um, mm. But it's easy for us to say because we all you know ultimately want shares of those budgets so you know of course you know i'm going to sit here and, and want the cfo to write a blank check to compliance say do what it takes to make us safe do what it takes to stop fraudulent activity plus other things um but you know reality may, might be a, a better goal might be somewhere in the middle of today and that um because we're probably not going to ever get quite there so as, as the people that are reaching out and talk to these customers day in and day out, and I, I guess it's kind of linked into 2020, right? I would have thought this mass migration to working from home would be the, the kind of catalyst that would make people realize the shortcomings of um, some of these non-automated approaches that you were talking about. Has that been the case? And is uh, the conversations that you're having with customers when they're, when they're interested, is it because they want to do better or because you've shown them a way of kind of making this process more automated, more efficient. And so, you know, we can reduce the number of man hours we need to, to be compliant. I think, um, well, you, you know, Tom, I've, I've, uh, I've changed roles relatively recently, um, into my, into my new one, but, um, 
certainly uh you know for my 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 current employer it it, it is i think both are true um uh you know it is very much the case that um you know in, in, you know and, and look, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna refrain insofar as i can from giving you the sales pitch but um you know encompass does uh you know provide um enormous efficiencies in terms of automating kyc and onboarding processes so i mean there is already that underlying need because i mean everybody knows that you know historically these are sort of long slow manual processes that take up a lot of time and, and money um but yes absolutely the you know 2020 and, and what we've been through has has um has accelerated that for a lot of our customers and and sort of prospects that i'm talking to where people are remote um you know perhaps they're looking at costs you know office space and you know every, everything else and you know being able to do this uh more efficiently uh more quickly but but also more robustly um you know is, is really somewhere they want to go and 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 i think for for the organization that i represent encompass you know i mean 2020 has actually been been um you know it's perhaps not a very um elegant way of of, of putting it but you know a, a, a boon um because this has highlighted you know how how a move to to uh, to a more automated process can really help the organisation. Are, are you able to quantify the effect? Like, are you able to quantify the efficiency gains? Well, it's it's um, it's difficult to do that sort of broadly uh, because the the solution that Encompass supplies is you know very very bespoke really to to any to any one organisation. Essentially, what the what the system does is to take a to take an organization's existing policies uh, and existing data sources and to to automate the way in which those those run um but i mean just to give you an idea i mean you know um and i know you know again <laughs> three three sales people on this call you know this is the sort of thing you'd expect me to say but you know a, a, a customer onboarding process that you know would take days to run you know manually with a with a human analyst going out to you know multiple different data sources having to have them verified bring them all back and so on and so forth you know that can take days and you know the encompass platform quite literally can do that in minutes um so you know i mean that and and, and again i mean that's just as i say sort of a, a um an example of what you know the sort of savings we can offer into in time um you know quite generally but but it's very specific customer to customer but but yeah i mean huge huge benefits from from automating that process and i i think you know if we're if we're talking about sort of products in the marketplace and, and now how we kind of quantify the value i think this is to my point earlier where we have to move away from you know our, our products um will main, help you stay compliant and avoid fines because i don't think that's why people buy our products anymore i think the reason people buy our products as rob's pointed out is because you can you can do things faster you know you can get customers to the door much faster um you can produce reports faster you can make sure that your um, employees are up to date on you know the latest changes internally faster and and you can prove that and i think that that in the end it is where the real value is and i think that's where um it's become really important that we are able to quantify these things that we are are able to say through you know whether it's an roi study or a post implementation study or something that we can say that you know we went in and we reduced the number of you know steps in a process which resulted in you know x 
time saved yeah. equals X dollars saved, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that's really where we have to get to. And um, something that I've seen this year, and I think for, for most in the reg tech um, sector, you know, this will have been a good year, just as the, the years that came after the 2008 financial crash were really good years for reg tech yeah. as well. So I think, you know, with um, more focus on people working from home, being remote, you know, fraud being more of an issue, um, keeping people up to date being more of an issue, understanding uh, a regulatory change, perhaps even more of an issue, um, it would have been good for all of us. But I think, yeah, it, it comes down to how effective are our tools and, and how can you measure that so that a compliance team can go and get budget. And when they ask for that budget, you know, the, the, the questions are going to be, what does this mean for the business? You know, what, what does it mean for us and our revenue targets? when they are, in many cases, you know, up against it because of the uh, conditions that we're in right now. So I think more than ever, we, we need to be able to uh, quantify the value to the business. Yeah, it, 100% agree. So my, my day to day, I don't sell directly anymore. I, I work with partners who then package up the screening and put it with their products and uh, they'll go and resell that bundle. But yeah, and you know, even the ones I don't work with just read read the sort of reg tech press or LinkedIn feed or whatever it is. There it's done arguably the best stories, all reporting huge, you know, 100%, 200%, 300% growth is, is identity verification because it is had to go remote. You cannot go anywhere to go hmm. if you wanted to do it the old fashioned way or the slow way, um, turn new terminology. So those guys have all done you know, really, really well out of this, obviously they'll see as, as the world eventually goes back to normal post this vaccine, does that stick around? Arguably some of it will, some of it won't. We'll, we'll wait and see. But to, to, I think Tom and Rob's point earlier, it's been a good kick to make people go, well, what can we do when we're all, when I can't turn, turn around in my swivel chair and ask my colleague this, or I don't have the most up-to-date spreadsheet because it's not been put through the uh, SharePoint or whatever yet. Um, so arguably, if they've had a good experience, these companies that have now gone and bought an identity verification tool, for instance, then the next question might be, how can I automate my screening? Well, you can do one of these 10 things, to be honest, and you'll automate more and how far you want to go down that um, you can choose. I want to now automate my uh, know your business stuff. OK, well, there's these data sets and there's these platforms that link them together. But it goes back to our earlier point where where that may get stuck is if you've got 400, 500, 800 firms, does the buyer have the endurance to go out and do this? And do they know how to buy something in their organization, especially if they're first time buyers um, or in, in a decision making role? So that would be the interesting bit. Everyone wants to do everything faster. As you said, David, that's the main thing every RegTech sells is speed. Um, because you can't really prove that you're going to make more money unless you're in the onboarding side and you can show the conversion rate. But you could e equally put that down to the, the new font or <laughs> the new app. or whatever. So it's very hard to split out. Um, so, yeah, I think seeing growth has been a boon in some of those areas. That will probably carry on for the next six months. Well, will start to go out to normal. We'll wait and see. But hopefully it has opened people's eyes that if you actually do you have to go down the tech route and you put the resource behind it. It can be done very quickly. You do not need a two-year rollout. You do not need a, you know, there was one of the fines that I did some reading for before this. Um, 
the regulator has given them four months to come up with a plan, which just seems ridiculous. Four months to come up with a plan before you actually do anything. You know, should it be, you know what to do. The regulations are there. You've got all the data, the plan in a week. You can guarantee it will be like school or university. The person will do it on the day before it's due. And <laughs> get on with it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just some of my thoughts before I go off on another rant. Sorry. <laughs> but well, I, think, I, mean, I think that's uh, sorry, Tom. I was just going to say. I mean, I think you know, David. David make, makes the point. I mean, David was talking about um, you know being able to demonstrate the the, the value effectively of, of, of what it is that you're doing. I mean, you know, and Alex, Alex touched there on on you know does does, does the organisation or the individual. I mean. Rarely that it's an individual these days, particularly in the larger institutions that that, that buys a solution. Do they know how to buy a, a solution? Um, you know, I, I think that that opens up a very interesting sort of area for us as salespeople. Is that you know, well, how how do we go about selling these things? You know, how do we go about, or you know, how do we go about helping our customers adopt these these things? And and you know, as David touched on, you know, really being able to demonstrate the value and, and help an organization understand the value of your tool, I think is, 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 is or data set or whatever it might be, is more important now than perhaps it's ever been. Yeah. Um, you know, where there is such a slew of alternatives, tools for different things and all the rest of it. And, and you know, that, that sort of then leads us as salespeople to think about, well, hang on a second, you know, how am I, how am I approaching this? Am I doing this in the right way? You know, is, mm. is the activity that I'm, performing going to lead to the result that I want and really thinking very carefully about the sales process. Um, <clears throat> As someone slightly more on the periphery, it, like it, surely the starting point is, yeah, you've got to be compliant. And then it, to provide value beyond that, isn't it um, return on investment in the sense of how can I save you money um, or how can I not stand in the way of you generating more business? And wouldn't the, the, the sort of the uh, panacea uh, like the perfect outcome be that compliance was just a thing that happened automatically um, and seamlessly and wasn't, you know, necessarily even like a back office function, but was built into every bit of the product along the way um, that required no kind of real thought or effort. Uh, well, look, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I think that's where, you know, it's, you know, some areas of the sector are, are actually moving to. I mean, we see, for example, a lot more, engagement um with front office staff who are sort of being I, I think perhaps you know probably quite rightly pushed back on by compliance teams you know to go away and gather information gather more information and 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 do some of that them, themselves so yes you know the, the the sort of the responsibility for for compliance with whatever the regulation might be um you know is spread across the uh spread across the organization through through a you know through through a business but um yeah. But no, I mean, but I, I suppose the, the only the point I was making was that I think I think it you know is is more not more difficult nowadays perhaps to you know to to um... it's how do you get attention I think is the point you're trying to make isn't it it's like if you've got a list of 800 reg texts and everyone's got slightly different uh, approaches to something everyone is going in uh, and Thomas you say you know everyone is going in with first of all you know I can I can make sure that you're compliant. And I can help you do it in a better, more effective, more efficient way. Um, and there's a whole other uh, uh, areas of value you're going to get as a result of using this solution. And, and, here, and here's the non-stick. 
Mm. And, and that, and I think that's a challenge. And, you know, in the conversation we had with John Ballas, you know, that came across really clearly is that everybody says the same thing. Everyone can help me. Everyone can do this, but I have very limited time. I've got, you know, I've got the day job to, to get on and do. I'm pushing my car up the square wheels. I don't have time right now to take a look at your round wheels, you know, to, to use the analogy mm -hmm. earlier. I think that, that that's, that's, from a sales perspective, that's our real problem right now is that yeah. how do you get that person's attention? How do you, how do you then build that trust with them so that you can have that opportunity to demonstrate the value you can bring to the firm? So saying you can do something, you know, isn't necessarily going to cut it. So you're going to have to go down the road of proof of concept, some, some form of you know, workshop or something like that, which all builds lots of time and, um, you know, additional steps into the sales process. So for us as salespeople with quotes to hit and, you know, um, revenue to generate, it, it becomes, I think it's, it's definitely feels harder than it has ever, I think, in order to get attention, you know, to actually get that conversation with somebody and to get to the point where you can sit down and actually not just go through a, a demonstration of, of what you can do and talk to some of these kind of value points, but to actually start to prove that yes, we can do this and start to then get it into the firm. It's, it's yeah. very difficult. That, that but I think, I think done, I think done right. Um, you know, yeah, yes, you know, it, it can be complex, but, but done right. It doesn't need to be too difficult. Um, I just think it really throws the spotlight back on, you know, proper discovery through a sales yeah. process, you know, actually understanding who am I talking to? Am I talking to the right person? Where do we fit? What are they doing at the moment? You know, asking questions, asking questions, asking questions, and and um, you know, my, my uh, you know, our, our sales leader here in, in Compass, you know, the the, uh, the the man that is Ed Lloyd, you know, he, he's he's superb about this, and and you know, has a has a whole series of superb, you know, processes put in place that you know guide us as salespeople to to discover all of that um, <laughs> stuff. Which is, which is what then leads to a, a sort of a better and smoother sales process. So as the market matures, it's the companies that have the most effective go-to-market strategy and who are most successful in delighting their customers will ultimately win out. Is absolutely. that a fair, a fair yeah. And I argue any market has 800 firms, you know, marketing is going to be king. You don't have to be the best. You need to be in the room and then you've got to have salespeople who can do that discovery. Mm. I want sort of, you know, to just provide a different perspective because I don't disagree with anything that's been said, actually. But to go back to the, the podcast that David did with Mr. Vaz, which was fantastic, I think, for any seller to just hear it from the, you know, sorry, Mr. Vaz, you're not a horse, but the horse's mouth. <laughs> of, look, this is some of the problems with in, in, my, in this sector today. But actually, it would be easier for the buyer. They'll spend less time if they take less meetings and they go and do that process with their, you know, if, I don't know, it depends how big the team is. You might have the whole team involved. You might have your middle management involved, but you do the discovery between yourselves and say, we're not going to go into a meeting and say, well, how can you make me be compliant and how can you make me do it cheaper? Because then I'm just going to get the same. There's so much time is going to be spent in workshops or discovery that at the time we've actually found out, can this company do it? We've spent a lot of man hours, salaried hours. What we're actually going to do is come in and say, hey, does, is your data structured like this, which will allow me to do this on the API? Or, hey, does your um, 
technology allow this sort of rating? Does it have these factors, which my current one doesn't, and come with real specifics that when you do take the meeting, you say to the salesperson, this is what I need. We'll also give you time to dig deep, as deep as you want. But then both sides are going to get more value. The salesperson is going to have something to build their discovery around, and the buyer isn't going to waste time in multiple meetings here in the elevator pitch or the overview deck of our company was founded and da 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 da. These brands, yeah, stuff so that nobody likes doing and no one's listened to either. But it, I think it, again, it's a two-way street. If more work mm. is to understand what could you do better constantly, then every meeting you you have with a RegTech firm will be more valuable because mm. they'll more quickly be able to say I can help you or I can't um, and you can get get on with pushing your, your square wheeled car if, if that's well, what you're operating at that, that time yeah I, I think and the, the other side of that as well and, and to your point at the beginning the, the the session Alex is that that there is something that we as you know salespeople or you know as a as a company can bring and hopefully it's a unique way or a, a different way. So a, a different way that hasn't been thought of by that compliance team. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's important as well is that um, when, you know, when you do engage, we, we want to be able to bring a, a new fresh set of, not necessarily a fresh set of eyes, but a new way of, of approaching some of these problems. And hopefully that's what differentiates us from, you know, all the myriad of, of organizations out mm. there um, looking at, you know, a different way of doing something. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there will need to be a much bigger shift. It already has started to happen, I think, you know, from some of the more successful salespeople I see and speak to and at various partners and internally. But it will go from the, you know, solution selling, which is what RegTech's kind of been, it will go to challenger selling. You've got to mm. go with a different perspective. But the more data the, the potential buyer is willing to give you and the more transparency, then the more effectively you can actually challenge their opinion or give them a new idea. Because you've got nothing to go off um, other yeah. in the company report where, where in compliance they hold the cards very close to their chest they actually say we know we can't eliminate these false positives because of this issue you might then be able to challenge in four or five ways you could solve it um depending on, on your solution or if you know encompass in, in, in rob's case or another platform might say well actually you could automate those six steps if you can sort out your data quality somewhere else and that's the yeah. uh, where the salesperson will, as you say, be a bit more interesting, a bit more challenging, rather than show and tell. I think you're absolutely right. And there's, um, I always uh, bear in mind, always uh, think of the Steve Jobs quote, and I don't know what it is verbatim, but essentially, you know, no one asked for the iPad. You know, he, no one could have told you that they wanted an iPad, but obviously when it came along, it was uh, changed the world. And the same with Henry Ford and the uh, the car. You know, he said if he'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. They didn't know that what they needed was a was a motor car. And I think that's true in in, in all of these areas, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's probably a different different podcast about how products get built. <laughs> Uh, yeah exactly yeah. but that's but that's i mean back to your point david and i think but uh, and to, to bring what i think what both of you said together is is that um absolutely right you know we we need to help these guys understand what we believe it is that they need um but 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 not just tell them that uh you know what we actually need to do is 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 help them discover that the, themselves and I, I think the day you know the day in which you can just go in as you know as alex says and show and tell you know talk about when you were founded and 
what you've got and mm-hmm. you know how it works you know no no way you know yeah you you really need to be a bit more cute than that and and actually sort of work with the the prospect to um to you know to help them understand that you know how, how what you've got will, will help <clears throat> i have a question for the three of you as we reflect on 2020 what are the things that really stand out for you starting with you rob because you're on my screen at the moment <laughs> well what apart apart from uh um what harry mm. and harry and megan moved to california oh my god you're right oh dagger <laughs> you know? through the heart dagger <laughs> through the heart um, do, you think, do you think they'll the brothers will ever reconcile oh who knows who knows has anyone listened to the Harry and Meghan podcast yet? No. Apparently it's out. I think I read. Really? Yeah. I think I saw a headline somewhere that said, pass me the bucket. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, I mean, we, we, we touched on it. Well, I say we touched on it. We haven't really spoken about it yet, have we? Um, you know, I think one of the, well, you know, one of the big things, or maybe even the big thing, depending on your point of view, of course, is the, um, you know, it's the FinCEN League. Um, you know, which I think, you know, it may be some time, I think, before we actually fully understand the the impact of that. Because uh, I think, you know, there were, I think it was probably felt, um, again, by people far more qualified than me that, you know, that the SARS regime perhaps wasn't, um, in all in all aspects, you know, perhaps wasn't quite quite what it what it could be or be as effective as it could be. But, you know, and may, maybe, you know, maybe the... Um, you know, the BuzzFeed ICIJ leak, you know, has, has, has sort of maybe bounced that forward a bit and, you know, really, really, um, you know, advanced that advanced that conversation. You know, cert- certainly at least as perhaps, you know, M- McMafia did for our sector more widely, um, you know, the, the, the way in which the FinCEN leaks was, was splashed across the, you know, the regular news coverage, you know, bringing that into, you know, everyday people's lives. I mean, I don't know, for you, Alex, David, how, how you are, but I mean, you know, uh, it, it's rare that I meet somebody sort of socially or, you know, in my in my sort of family circle who really understands what it is that I do or the sector I work in. And, and um, I think it's I think it's great that you know um, you know there should be a wider a wider conversation about that. But but yeah, I mean, I think the the FinCEN thing is 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 big. Um, I, I think there were a lot of obviously a lot of different opinions about the rights and wrongs of that information being leaked or interpretations of it or misinterpretations <clears> of it and whether, you know, who's at fault, are the banks actually, you know, will, willfully moving, you know, terrorist money around or, you know, is it the fact that the NCA only have, um, you know, however many it is, I forget, you know, 100, 100 odd people working on these things at any one time and how on earth can they be expected to process these things in any detail but i i think that is a you know that's maybe an important thing i think it's probably been overshadowed by by covid to be, to be fair um you know we perhaps haven't had all of the discussion and fallout from it that um that we might otherwise have had i think fincen kind of went back to some of the earlier points you had about the banks did what they were supposed to. They were compliant. If you have suspicion, you file the report. The reports that were leaked were old ones, so not not sort of meaningful in the moment. Um, it's bad that it's been leaked in a sense that you expect those things to stay private, but it's the world we live in. Um, 
I think it goes back to there's, as you say, family, friends don't really have a clue what, what I do or what any of us do. It's a very sort of insular uh, little industry that we, we work in, although growing. Um, but what would be good is if that was clearly exp explained to the public. So rather than bank bashing for the sake of bank bashing, if the general consumer or let's say a, a certain level of consumer, because not everyone's going to get it, um, could say, the bank's responsibility is that if something dodgy is happening is to tell the authorities and then to get out of the way that's fine but then you could have a political debate about well actually should that be their role or should it be if it reaches a certain threshold and those thresholds are reviewed by independent regulators whatever then they should shut down the account or they should do something a bit more dramatic than just file a report and hope somebody else takes action it goes back to is their job to do what the government says or is it to try and stop bad money being put through with good um but yeah bigger bigger than bigger than uh my opinions i guess <laughs> well i'm not going to solve it anyway but that i think that level of literacy around our financial system would be a good thing because it might might move the ball maybe maybe fincen starts that as hopefully covid starts to uh be vaccinated away so to speak <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it's an interesting point you make there. I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, because you 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 touch on on tipping off. You know how how you know the the, the banks aren't aren't allowed to uh, you know to, to sort of you know freeze accounts. In, in, you know, in, in in many in many cases, and and um, I, I think the you know the the man in the street would 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 be flabbergasted by that. You know, sort of the idea that you know the bank sort of steps away and watches this happen. Um, you know, I, I wonder if. Uh, you know that is something that um, is perhaps too unpalatable for the you know for some people for the you know should the man in the street know that um, you know and then then that's when you get up into sort of the hierarchies of all well, you know what's what, what's going on in, in, in sort of political terms and what are we doing and what are we trying to achieve either you know nationally or internationally um, you know do 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 we want people to know that you know, effectively, these transactions are being allowed to happen in order that, you know, that the, 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 uh, the chain can be watched, you know, the, 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 uh, the movement of the money can be can be watched and, and identified. But, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if, if anyone listening, you know, w w does doesn't know much about this and wants to, I mean, Graham, Graham Barrow is sort of the, the oracle on this stuff. Yeah. I mean, he wrote, he wrote a lot of the time where he was involved, of course. Um, you know, he, he he was a consultant to the ICIJ and BuzzFeed's work, and you know he wrote a lot about um, you know the ins and outs and the rights and wrongs and as as it were. And and um, you know one one of the things I picked up on there, of course, was the um, you know the the the, the Damel SAR, you know, the Defence Against Money Laundering, which you know is actually sort of submitted at the time or ahead of. Mm -hmm. um, you know the, the transaction. You know that's that's flagging to the authorities that this this transaction is being is being made, as opposed to you know a, a retrospective SAR. And I think there was a suggestion that you know a, a lot of these were were far too retrospective. Um, you know, and, and there was a sort of a question raised as to well, hang on a second. You know, why 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 on earth are you are you submitting a SAR so long after this having happened? Um, you know, should you have not known a bit sooner and should you not have um, submitted this a little earlier? 
I don't recall the gentleman's name, but there was a guy from DOJ at a conference at the end of 2019, just when I started back at, at RDC. Um, and he just you know, threw out quite an interesting point, which is saying he would like to see, he was like, I don't know if it will work, but um, I feel it would do better than the current legislature in, in the US and Europe and everywhere, really. We said, I'd like to see some sort of um, legislation around a failure to prevent money laundering. So if it happens through your systems, it mean, that means your systems are not good enough. And therefore, there'll be some sort of action taken. And then you'll see CFOs, CEOs really care because the, the bar goes to that more infinite level. You've just got to keep improving it to try to prevent it as absolute much as possible. I don't know how you enforce that. I don't know what's a fair level of fine. Arguably, the value of the trend, one of you made on it plus something, so it's punitive. Um, but again, do the regulators have the headcount? Do they have the resources to... to deal with something like that I don't know um, but I always thought that was an interesting point because it that would really change this sort of conversation rather than going oh I'll submit that SAR once I've had time it's like no we're doing something now because we're not going to pay for this out of our pocket because we need to pay our dividend we need to keep our share price high well one, I mean one thing I was actually going to ask you you guys all I mean I and I mean this is again it's one of those sort of perennial you know, think, you know, topics of conversation that gets kicked around, but you know, f fines as as the punishment. And I mean, I, we haven't really spoken about any specifically um, yet. I, I don't think, but you know, I, I I mean, like you know, like like you guys, you know, when you when you start out in this sector and you know you 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 prepping your pitch and everything. I mean, it's all about fines and oh, you know, you're going to get fined this much and look at this bank that's been fined this enormous amount of money. Well, you know, okay. I mean, the, the one the one that always sort of sticks in my mind is is you know the, the sort of the the multi billion dollar fine that BNP Paribas got. I mean, that was like the the the, the first I think you know really really big one. Um, well, BNP Paribas is still in operation. Um, yeah. You know, okay. I, 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 I'm pretty sure that a lot has changed internally, and you know, there will have been changes made and 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 things rectified. But um, you know, whose money is that that's that's actually gone to pay that fine? Mm. Um, you know, what 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 has what has actually happened? I mean, you know, look, this is this bigger question. You know, that that, that would require a series of podcasts um, involving people far more knowledge, knowledgeable than me, but. Um, you know, are fines an effective way of dealing with these things? I mean, I suppose that's what I, what I'm asking. I mean, is it is it you know, if it's the bank's money, um, will, will that will that not always come down to a trade off against um, you know potential business wins or you know what, whatever it whatever it might be? Um, you could go the for the radical Alex Pillow approach of incentivizing um, good behaviour. So so those that catch bad guys get a tax break. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was episode six of RTL. And a ranking. I forget, but uh, I, I would like to see the market better designed. So, like, if you think about everything as a market, you know, people just make behaviour to try and get an outcome at all times in any situation. Um, and a fine, it it would work. I th I think it's an effective stick if the stick is big enough to to really hurt. I, you know, look through the link you sent around, Rob, a few days ago. It's like. 20 top fines but once you get past the first few none of them are really touching the sides of these organizations you know 
20 million for Standard Chartered, you know, is their pocket money for their, their youngest, really, isn't it? Um, there's 50 million for the People's Bank of China. Mm. Um, these things don't do a lot. Uh, Deutsche Bank got 150 million for stuff that mentioned Jeffrey Epstein and all the horror stories that are sort of surrounding that. Um, yeah, I won't go any further in case it's libelous, but uh, it, these things probably aren't proportional. If it was, hey, it's this amount of money, it's whatever you made on it, we're going to double and we're going to take that away. And maybe we're going to prevent you from paying a dividend for this many, you know, a year to something where literally shareholders are going to go, no, we're not having it. They're going to pull their money out or they're going to force change. Then it's an effective stick. But I think every market should have the carrot as well. You know, mm. Whether or not it's a tax break system, whether or not it's some, you know, some sort of recognition and you can then market that, you know, for all the CSR that big companies do, it'd be a lot better if they just didn't do bad stuff. <laughs> um, it'd probably uh, have a much bigger impact if banks didn't launder money or didn't allow people to launder money through them. That would do a much bigger impact than all the charitable giving that they do, uh, arguably. So, yeah, I'd like to see carrot and stick, but to Tom's point, I sort of went went with the tax rate system because it's the only thing I could think of at the time. If anyone has an idea, please please let us know. Or, I'm not I'm not sure how I'm not sure how uh, tax breaks for bankers goes down uh, <laughs> in, in, in wider society. Yeah. Goes back to explaining it properly, right? Uh, but, yeah, pro probably probably wouldn't work on that platform. Somebody else needs to sell that better salesperson than me. What about personal accountability? You know, SMCR obviously sort of up and running now. Um, I don't know, we, we haven't really seen much yet, um, but I do, in the firms that I, I talk to and that you know, our customers, um, this is clearly, uh, um, in talking to the uh, front office now, um, they are more and more keen to understand the level of responsibility they now have and the communication out to their team in terms of, you know, what the organisation expects of them from a behavioural perspective, um, you know, policy, internal policy, obviously a big driver for that. Um, so I, I wonder if we'll see that. This year we had uh, the DOJ um, issued um, guidance um, earlier in the year during COVID, uh, during the lockdown, um, but that was uh, pointed quite squarely at you know, senior management, ensuring that you know, sufficient systems controls are in place, making sure that people understood their responsibilities, ensuring that you know, correct policies and procedures were all in place. So I do think that whilst we haven't seen much uh, in, the, in the way of um, any personal fines or, or you know, anything more than that, I wonder if that's going to uh, change behaviour. Yeah, that was here. A little bit like earlier when Rob was saying about once one bank gets fined and the other compliance department starts to go, oh, we'll go and have a look. Kind of yeah. it takes the enforcement for anything to then happen when you'd like to think that there's a way that people would just uh, want to do well and want to do things right regardless. But yeah. it comes down to what their incentives are ultimately. Um, yeah. Well, and, and one thing that probably we're not always privy to as well of course is the challenges that those compliance people have internally i mean they you know it's, it's probably one thing for them wanting to do it i mean they probably see the challenges that they've got day to day of course they you know we've all got a boss right you know they've got to go and convince their boss that that you know budgets needed for this and then of course questions will be asked about well you know what's the payoff and 
and can't you just carry mm. on as you are and you know and all, yeah, all the rest of it so. that's like it shouldn't necessarily be the mlro that should be on the hook or maybe it's them plus the board uh, the chairman of the board mm. plus the ceo and then you've got a team of powerful you've got the two powerful people and then you've got the hopefully the person that can execute this if they're at that that mro level or chief compliance officer level um but so again Arguably, you could just tweak some of these things just to get a bit more urgency. Mm. And then, to our point, our bit of the this world needs to do better and explain what it is and making it easier for people to implement and all those things. Um, but it takes everyone to try and actually achieve the thing, which isn't just being compliant. It's to try and reduce, you know, societal harm, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you like I mean, to and, and sort of going going back a bit. I mean, you know, on you know, to sort of bring bring two things together i mean we're talking about fines but you know you asked me about well you know things in 2020 i mean of course there was the goldman sachs fine for you know their involvement in the 1mdb scandal you know again you know multi-billion dollar fine 3.9 billion dollars um you know what is 3.9 billion dollars to goldman sachs um you know is, is that a you know is that is that a sort of an existential issue for them um you know i'm sure you know that behaviors will change and, and and things may not happen again but you know what 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 real difference is made by by finding you know by finding goldman sachs 3.9 billion dollars i don't know i mean obviously these things normally go along with a package of remediation steps you've got to take and all, all these things so there, there's work done to improve it but like we said earlier if it then gets to a point and it stops there then that will quickly go out of date it sort of almost more needs to be a a priming of the pump as people say to like get it going but then that needs to carry on it needs to improve every day week month and so on for it to keep a pace so mm. yeah it's you know it's an un yeah that, i like but it's it's going to take a mindset change as well as all the tech that already exists and some that doesn't exist yet yeah i mean that's a again another very good point i mean the, you know the, these these banks that are sort of put under uh you know dpas you know deferred prosecution agreements and then sort of they spin up all the wheels and they get everything going and you know they 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 they, they you know have their monitor in to sort of certify that yeah okay yeah, they got everything in that that needed to be in and then and then psh, you know, monitor disappears, DPA yeah. is closed, you know, and then, well, yeah, okay, is, 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 is all that carrying on through or, or is that all just suddenly suddenly sort of dropped and scaled back because because the DPA has gone away, you know? Um, and there's no, no real reason I, I can see, of maybe privacy, I don't know enough about it, but if the financial system does move to more of these RegTech platforms or different types of platforms, that regulators couldn't just be given access to, you know, and then they can just have their own own dashboards, right? And go, right, what's happening at this bank? Um, and you know, why do you need someone in that person's office to monitor things and sign it off? Just have a continuous monitor. Um, you know, we're nowhere near that right now, uh, given you know, adoption and how piecemeal things are. But technologically, there's no reason why it couldn't happen. It just takes a bunch of people to want to do it. But the, the tech wouldn't be that hard. When you talk about the rules of the game, the rules of the game are set by the um, by the government, right? And yeah. um, and it's their appetite to tighten those rules of the game or not. 
and many things can affect all of this. And somewhat related to that, one of the big things of 2020 was uh, Brexit. It actually happened in January 31st, I think. Um, and obviously, we've recently learned that we will have some form of a, uh, a deal moving forward with the European Union. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, effects so far um, and into the future of Brexit? Well, I was looking into this because so one of the weak points in the agreement was that there the, the passporting uh, rights haven't been agreed. And so um, when you saw the reaction in the stock market the day after, um, the stock markets were uh, lifted, uh, but the banks suffered quite heavily because the view is, is that actually they didn't get a great deal in the end. And there's still quite a bit of confusion as to um, what's going to happen from a regulation perspective. But as far as I can tell, um, at the moment, the the expectation is that we'll, we'll continue to follow you know much of those rules uh, in europe um albeit there's things like the six eu money laundering directive which is coming up which i think we've already said we're not going to um adopt we feel already that we have sufficient uh, uh, laws already so i i don't know as new things come up as changes happen in europe will will we follow suit i i don't know will we have our own take on things will we feel that we are I don't know. It really, we, we, it's up to us to make sure that as a country, you know, we, we can compete. And that means we have to follow the same rules as everyone in Europe, I guess. But I don't know how much changes for a compliance officer right now, but certainly uh, going forward, they'll, they'll have to maintain see a set of rules to be compliant with Europe and obviously a set of rules to be compliant with the UK. Uh, the, the only immediate impact, you know, throughout this year really has been uh, customers, partners just sort of asking, Hey, where where is your AWS instance? And you go, well, it's in the EU, and they go, great. Yeah. Don't worry then. Um, so like me, nothing really. Um, if I was to speculate, sort of going forward, generally fairly optimistic person. So I'd say that could provide an opportunity to try, you know, some regulatory things differently. And then if they work, you might see Europe adopt them. Or if Europe tries something and we try something else and it doesn't work, we can then change the European model when we've seen the evidence. So when you have different regulate uh, regulatory standards, it actually allows for A-B testing. And then everyone gets to a better place rather than just going, we're all doing this, we hope it's right, we have no evidence of whether or not it is. It's just what we've decided. Um, could op you know, We might align ourselves more to the US perhaps and our banking sector will be more orientated towards working with New York and, and others rather than... Yeah, I think that's, that was the Mervyn King suggestion, wasn't it? We, we can see that, but I don't know. I'm obviously not, not, not a banker. Um, so could see see what happens there. I think the main thing I people talk about, oh, we've got all these different regulatory things and we need to do it all differently. I would, Yes, you obviously do, and there'll be specifics in different terms but for broad things aml standards go for the heart find the hardest one find the one you consider the highest bar beat that bar and keep going and they don't need to worry about the rest mm. um yes you'll need people with specific knowledge to say yes and there's this weird rule in xyz country that's fine but if you just try to be the absolute best go for the hardest standard then a lot of those concerns should melt away because you're already past whatever the local regulator wants because they're actually behind someone else in the world so that would be my my take on it probably have people screaming at me till i'm wrong and they're probably right but that's that would be 
my approach follows the other side of the, the desk on a, in terms of compliance. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say that. I mean, I, I think you know, there's, there's perhaps two two questions in one there, Tom, that you you asked. I mean, you know, the the impact of breakfast, breakfast, Brexit. Uh, you know, David um, said, you know, I, th I think remains to be seen largely as, you know, in, 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 in as far as financial services uh, and, and certainly our, our sector. Um, the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the premise of your question or the, the, the first part of your question certainly was that, you know, this all leads back to governments, right? And what the governments want to do. You know, that for me is the really sort of interesting and fundamental question. And this is why, you know, I mentioned Oliver Bullo earlier and sort of what he writes about. And, um, and, and for me, you know that there is always in all of these in all of this stuff that we that we talk about um you know there there is a sort of a you know always for me there is an underlying sense of well look okay you know this is all great this is everything that we're doing i mean you know look from from our perspective yeah look we're selling all these solutions isn't this wonderful we're doing all this stuff and yeah the banks are doing this and it's great and they're doing this faster and quicker and cheaper and you know um but fu fundamentally um you know, we still see enormous amounts, like, un, you know, unimaginably large amounts of money that is known to come from, at the very least, questionable sources, if not downright dirty sources, whether it's from the Middle East or from China or from Russia. And, you know, I find myself asking, well, you know, what would be the impact on the UK economy, if we're talking about the UK, of all of that money not coming in? To London, or you know, or, or, you know, or, or not not coming into. It. I mean, just take the house. I mean, you and I have joked about this before, but I mean, let's let's you know look at London's house, you know, housing market. You know, if 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 all of the uh, you know perhaps questionable money was to come out of the London housing market, well then the London housing market drops. You know, the price of my flat drops. Was that in my interests? You know, who you know. I suppose the, the the point I'm trying to make is, you know, are there, you know, if not vested interests, um, you know, bigger questions at play here yes. about, well, look, you know, there is a, a big global economy and, you know, we've, I mean, I, I to, was it just today, I think, announced, you know, the EU is, is on the verge of a deal with China. Um, now, look, I mean, there's going to be some... Um, biting of tongues if that's a way of putting it you know over, over that you know what 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 what's going to get what's going to get ignored um in 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 um you know in terms of sort of you know, with, with a view to signing a, a a beneficial trade arrangement with with china you know what what's going to kind of get swept under the carpet and not worried about you know whether it's human rights <clears> or Xinjiang or whether it's animal welfare or um, you know what what's happening sort of wildlife in Africa being trafficked across up to to China for you know there are there are sort of payoffs I think that 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 reach a, uh, a you know a, a real global geopolitical scale yeah that, that, that you know our, our government surely is weighing up in in all of these things well take take London property right what you talk about vested interest what appetite is there really to deal with um how much of London is owned by um by a, a very small number of very wealthy people based in regimes like um kind of russia or or china and 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 then also and the answer is obviously 
not not much there is not much appetite at all to be dealt with it otherwise more would have been done you know the the unexplained wealth orders is it wasn't the first one um that was ever issued was a lady who just went on a mad buying spree in harrods it was like so egregious yeah. that that like that they decided to follow up on it but what about large swathes of london that have been bought up by um by people whose the the origin of whose money is sort of questionable but but the reality is some of these we talk about china china is a, a sovereign state it's uh, in seven years time likely to overtake the us in terms of the size of its economy it's going to be the world superpower um, as far as we can see um within the next sort of 50 years in in sort of all respects questioning the sources of some of these money uh, these money when they're, they're actually politicians and so on and business people from those nations um, simply because we don't necessarily agree with the regime. Well, that's just not that's not tenable, is it? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a question that we've got to all, I suppose, ask ourselves, you know, uh, collectively and individually. And I suppose, look, if you were to take it to its extreme, it's something that's decided at the ballot box, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, there are there are those who would sort of think that the current uh uk administration are are perhaps you know won't to to turn a blind eye to 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 much of that or, or perhaps not to be as proactive as they might um in 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 stopping some of those things whereas you know an, another party in government might do things slightly differently but but yeah so 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 say i mean that's the reason why i raise it really is because i often sort of you know sit there and i think well look this is all great but is it ultimately futile um mm. because you know are we really collectively whether that's us as vendors or um, institutions or us working with them you know we're all fighting this good fight and you know everybody talks about fighting financial crime and but if you know are, are we playing on one square of a 64 square chessboard uh you know and 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 actually the you know we're making we're making very little difference because you know the the much bigger more important relationships at play you know um you know out outsize our sort of concerns and 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 you know uh daily daily dealings you know by 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 an enormous factor i think you're right i i think you're right and i think that this is you know this is an issue throughout history you you can see you know certainly uh especially with the british empire and you know the obviously colonialism and the things that we've done um you know throughout the empire this has been this is a perennial problem isn't it and it's a, a problem i think that all uh, nations will deal with but i think that to your point where you know, how much do people care how much do people what are the consequences if you start to shut these things down um a, a good i think a good example of this is and tom you might have to have your lawyers check this before you broadcast this uh -oh. just so, so you don't do us for libelous but allegedly we, we had yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry Kevin. Um, we had uh, what this year um, uh, discovery that at um, uh, a very large fashion retailer uh, they were um, using um, UK-based uh, factories to produce these clothes, paying these people at way way below what is uh, minimum wage. Um, to a level that I think a reasonable person would consider that to be modern day slavery. Yeah. Um, so what, what we're doing is using suppliers yeah. who, unbeknownst to them, 
were engaged in these Well, practices. they say so. Unbeknownst to them, albeit the factory was owned by the brother of the owner of uh, Boomer. Aha, that so, is you know, allegedly. Let, let's, Quite allegedly, good. allegedly, of course. <laughs> But, but I think that if if you were really serious about shutting down modern day slavery, you would the, that organisation should be shut down. I think that customers are still buying those clothes. That that company still advertised heavily. You know their revenues are doing fine. Their stock prices recovered, um, and I think possibly the reason that that organisation uh, wasn't allowed to fail and wasn't brought down is because they are traded on the stock exchange they are they have very big investors they will have institutional investors there they have you know a very senior board um and it's not within the interests of everybody that is invested in that organization including you know in some part people's pensions to um run that company down so that company has to uh, continue as a going concern uh, meanwhile who knows how long it takes and, and real, what the real consequences are as a result of actually, um, I you know, could argue that knowingly were employing um, essentially modern day slaves to produce incredibly cheap clothes to serve a market that is actually willing to buy very, very cheap uh, uh, goods and not question how these products can be made at these prices and I think you, you can kind of scale that up into financial services where you know maybe to Alex's point early you know that the way that you change these behaviors is the market has to change and so the consumer has to question why is it that this only cost me this how how am I able to afford this for such little money whether that is insurance whether it's a financial product or whether it's a new dress pair of trousers top whatever and I think it, that's that's partly what it comes back to um so it's a bit of a rant there but i yeah. think that, that well, that's think a good that example fun. of like what are the consequences but, but, but who's weird right so so and again we this is all allegedly and obviously they they said that they didn't know um anything about it and and so on and i'm sure all this is still playing out but the but the only thing remarkable about that is that it was in the uk because for for decades we've been buying really 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 cheap clothes they were just made somewhere else Mm. You know, and we now know some large brands were employing. Well, I, I suppose uh, the very question is: is it, is it is it remarkable? I mean, you know, you could say, well, you know, is it, I mean, maybe we just know about it now, right? I mean, back to mm. what we were saying about earlier. You know, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, until it's on the news and sort of being fed into your living room. But, I mean, the other interesting thing, I mean, without wanting to disappear down a complete wormhole, um, I mean, I, I heard you know local politician from 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 the area, you know, being being interviewed and and and. Um, it might have been a, a, a metro mayor for Birmingham or something like that. I can't remember his quite his title exactly, but saying that you know they've known for ages that this has been going on. They know <laughs> they know where these factories are. They know who these workers are. They know how little they're being paid, um, and and you know flags have been raised and, and and nothing has been done about it. And I mean, and and the trouble is that you know as with so many of these things, of course, it's not an easy it's not an easy fix not least because he was explaining there are three separate agencies that would be involved in addressing that issue, uh, you know, across, you know, sort of employment, employment rights and, and, and slavery and so on. You know, the, the, the whole the whole situation is not owned by a single agency with a, a single sort of reporting line. You know, <laughs> earlier, Rob, like, what we do is absolutely one square of the 64, however many squares there are. But equally, the 
people that work on modern slavery. We've got a, a charity partner called Unseen UK. So if you've not heard of them and are interested in that, definitely look them up. They'll happily take donations, given they've not been able to really fundraise normal way this year. Um, but they're working on that square. And then the, all these other squares, the real estate sector is absolutely prime for a regulatory revolution in terms of they need to work more like banks do on their KYC AML, like as a starter. Um, to try and sort out some of that, particularly London property market, and, and do it. Because if we're all doing the bits on our individual squares, and you're preventing more of this, again, to just use the capsule, like illicit activity, illicit funds, whatever it is, then yes, there'll be that short-term hit, money will get sucked out of a city or a country or whatever, but it actually makes room for more productive monies, more productive wealth that is actually doing something, mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, we, I won't go down the social media hole, um, but you know, there's there's products that make money but don't do anything that really moves the world forward. And then there's things that do. And obviously, we'll do as many of those as we can, as much money as when those things, because then things you know change and evolve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All we can do is our bit on our piece of the board, and then hopefully others are doing the same, or, or they see that and go, we we could do something cool. But um, governments etc to your, your point yeah they're they're going to do whatever they do but yeah well i suppose governments bend themselves to, to what, say what the electorate like. want don't they they they'll, they'll you know they'll flex and become what the electorate want uh so that they can get elected into power and then they'll yeah. uh, hopefully uh, enact the the things that they uh, well you'd like to think so <laughs> well it happened recently didn't it the um and so just one final thing interesting you about boohoo uh, those those suppliers of boohoo didn't that only come to light because it turned out there was a COVID outbreak at one of the factories that drew attention to them? And then they said, wait, why are you still open? Mm. And, uh, wait, hold on a minute. Everyone's being paid uh, this this sort of pittance and you're working in kind of shocking conditions. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting mm. on its own, isn't it? And I just rounding off the uh, the Brexit piece, which is what, what um, prompted this conversation. And going back to something we said earlier, it's going to add complexity. Right. So, so when you start talking about these free ports um, that that have been discussed and divergence in terms of regulations, it's going to add complexity to doing business. And regtech, ultimately, in the name of allowing you to meet your regulatory obligations, but do so in a more efficient way, is going to be the answer to um, to dealing with some of that complexity, added up complexity. So it kind of feels like. Um, in some ways, it will be, um, you know, uh, potentially, uh, you know, another sort of tailwind for the ray tech industry. You would have thought so. I mean, it, when we say complexity, what we really mean is paperwork. Most yeah. paper yeah. can be automated yeah. if someone is willing to use APIs and RPA and, and these other things that are pretty well established now. They've just got to put it in place and they'll go, oh, it's such a hassle. But once it's done, it, it's no longer complex. You just need to know what, what it's doing and if the rules change, you need to then um, ad adapt it. But uh, yeah, I mean, okay, there's probably the technology already there and somebody could just pivot to use that startup language or create a new product line, or it might create room for a couple of entrepreneurs or who knows, maybe another 800 next year, it'll be 1600 reg, reg tech firms or something like that who are working on that issue. So yeah, in theory, it could, it could be interesting in terms of it, it creates more opportunity, but yeah, but most of these things I think can be automated if the the buyers and the budget holders are, are willing to do the execution piece with the the right vendors. 
Do we need to discuss some of the big um, mergers that have um, that have happened this year? So, so I'm just kind of thinking. Wait, when did uh, when did RDC get acquired by? That was uh, well announced January and official in February after approval. But I was going to say, for, when, to your 2020 question, I would say that's the in our world, the arrival of the the big money is the is the interesting thing or the most interesting thing from my perspective. Um, we can go after. I can see yeah people nodding on the screen. So um, for me, yeah, Moody's kicked it off. RDC pull it together with, with BBD and other things that they've bought, like Acquire Media, you know, become one of the major players, own the data assets, own or build or buy the, the technology. You've got Relks Group doing things with Acuity and Lexus. DMB went and bought Biznode, which is actually a spin out of theirs, and they've IPO'd as well. Refinitive brought Red Flag. I don't know how much of that was a long term strategy and how much of that was, well, everyone else is buying things, so we better. Better do so too. S&P's gone for IHS market, but subject to approval for a huge multiple. Um, so while we ha we've had the, in London anyway, the, the VCs and some startups and it's all interesting, but you've also, Tom, you'll remember we did that timeline when we did the history of uh, name screening. We had the sort of late 90s through mid 2000s of the the mainstays, the, the sort of main brands that we know in that space all start and build. Then there was some M&A activity for the next five, six years. Then there was, there's been another period of growth. And now all of those major brands are owned by multi-billion dollar. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it's it's gone up a level. It's matured again. Is it, uh, I think what we should just take a moment to recognize the fact that we called it unfortunately we, we didn't we actively right. discuss it on the podcast and so no one will ever know that we predicted it and we were right no, but, but there, there are some you know next time a big firm is going to go and pay lots of money to a consultancy or investment bank and you can just call tom and, <laughs> and, 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 half the day and we'll probably do just as good a job almost certainly <laughs> probably allegedly <laughs> um, yeah, all mean, your money back yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, I mean, so what? What are we? What are we? Uh, what have we got then? Three, three big, you know, three big organisations. What? Refinitiv, Relex, LNRS, Security. Refinitiv, of course, soon to be LSE. Well, that that was where that was where I was I was going, David. I mean, that that oh, that for me. Is, there, no, no, not no. Look, not at all, not at all. But I think that is because I mean, I was I was actually just double checking. Um, uh, there was something there from the beginning of December about the the, the deal being approved because it's gone for you know antitrust you know an antitrust ruling or whatever you know that um, you know that's going to be fascinating is to see what happens with with Refinitiv in you know in in the face of um, you know the growing the growing sort of Relex Group the you know Moody's BBD RDC uh, amalgamation um, you know what's what's going to what's going to happen there I mean I, I've you know look. R rumors abound about all sorts of different things but you know might 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 the risk business get spun out of, of refinitive after the after the deal is done um if so where does it go um what does it you know what does it what does it include uh you know if, if that's the case but if not then you know you've got refinitive backed by an enormous organization yes i mean that's you know and then and then you know and then what does that what does that mean for for the top of our conversation right about all those little about all those little reg techs. I mean, are, are do they get squeezed out? You know, do, do these guys sort of 
you know, um, put their shoulder to some of the more thorny problems that perhaps these little reg techs are, are seeking to to uh, to solve. Um, you know, do they get wiped out because of that, or do they just get sucked in to the mothership through acquisition? I mean, what what happens? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important to think about. There's data and there's technology, and some companies will have a bit of both fundamentally you can't do any of the technology stuff without the data the data powers all of the automation without it no automation doesn't matter how good your algorithm is if you don't have the thing that it can draw on or feed in or match against etc so what happens with the the world check database within refinitive after lse stuff what happens to, to Dow jones moving forward does somebody buy by that piece of the business we'll see but those data assets are hugely valuable, which is why these guys are buying them up now. Most of the red checks, not all, but the vast majority are technology players. How big or small or niche or widespread they are, you know, that's all that's all gonna be played out through through market forces and we'll see what happens. But I would have thought the good ones or the or the ones that are the best fit would get bought up eventually, and that's their route out with the companies that are owning the data assets because then they can make it all work together if they can't build build the tech themselves and then there'll be other niche ones that solve specific problems that are quite happily private companies because it's not a big enough market for anyone to want to go dominate but they can make a very healthy living for a team of you know 10 to 100 people and that's that's brilliant that's the kind of stuff you you want in a you know sme market but um that that's the the key thing is that those platforms only work if there's data to go and get. So they've got to make themselves so valuable that the people that own the data are either going to buy them or make them partner of choice, would be um, say. And, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, certainly from, from, from where you're sitting, Alex, you know, with, your, with your RDC hat on, yeah. um, you know, when, you know, if we were to start talking about sort of you know, machine learning and you know, how that's applied to screening let you know let's say i mean you know rdc arguably is in the box seat there you know as, as you and i know because of you know the history of decisions that they've got from you know rdc's um analyst review process and so it's got that history of of decisioning which 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 powers its new uh you, you know new ai and, and machine learning offering um but if we sort of throw ourselves forward and and think about you know the the automation that you that you were talking about, um, and I'm, you know just curious your guys' opinion. I mean, assets like World Compliance, World Check, Dow Jones. Is is there a point in the future where where they become redundant because actually that information is being pulled back in real time? So, I would say, I would say that those companies, you know rdc and that are probably going to be the best people at pulling it back in real time and structuring it because they've already got a lot of the lessons and you know the sanction stuff isn't hard as we all know it's there you, you pull it in you structure it you make it consistent etc that's not particularly difficult but i mean this is where comply is interesting you know they did that they try or they're trying to do the hardest thing they're trying to build a data set by advantage yeah 15 years after the industry kicked off so all of that pep data, all of that adverse media stuff that needs to have been captured at the time and structured and recorded, that's very hard to do. But the data assets themselves, I think, retain value. How you build on top of them and make them more efficient, 
that's obviously the challenge. Those companies need to do that to stay relevant and to keep their data assets the most valuable. But I've, I've seen this year 101 different due diligence solutions where really all they're doing is a glorified Google search. And they go, we've used AI machine learning to pull back relevant negative news. They go, no, you've given me a bunch of links that I've, now I've got to read as a human being. That's not helpful. That's been done. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, the major four providers all do this better than you. And they actually structure it for me so I can make the decision quicker. So I take your point about pulling it in real time, but I I think if I, if I had to bet, I'd put it on the existing providers doing it better. It, you know, they're, they're not going to be as agile because they're big and we all know big means you know s- slower to move, but got more of the resource, they've got the underlying data asset to build on top of and improve and improve the processes that create the data asset, mo- many of which are automated already. Um, so I think it's very hard for new providers to break into the data asset market unless they do something specific. I wouldn't go, if I was building one, I wouldn't go head to head on sanctions, peps and adverse media. I would do something specific on modern slavery, for instance, to, to use the uh, example we were just talking about and create something very you know, specific to that and be the provider for that and then try and do the next thing. So I think going head to head is a long battle that you're unlikely to win. But we we were talking about some of the, the big the big mergers there. So so what are the ramifications of these um, these acquisitions and there being these these larger players in practice? I think it, it creates a more obvious exit route for a lot of those other firms. They sort of say, okay, well these companies got to a certain point and got bought up by those, uh, these these big names. You know the the Moody's, the Relics, etc. Um, so they may start to think about that and try and find out what do we need to do to position ourselves around that ecosystem. What can we do that they don't have that's value adding? So it might create a sort of map, and then that will allow these firms to be a bit more targeted and say, right, well we're going to fill in these blank spaces because we, if we grow on our own back and we can IPO, fantastic. But most firms don't. Therefore, your next best option, if you're not just going to run the company for as long as, you know, until you want to retire, if you're the founder, is to get bought. So this might give them something more to aim at, um, knowing that there's, at the end of the game, there's going to be three or four large brands that, that own a lot of this stuff. I think from a sales perspective, and you know, as salespeople with product to sell, I think it offers a point for uh, review. So I think as as we all know, having worked for large organizations that have gone through acquisitions and mergers, it can be pretty chaotic. Um, there's often customers f- start to feel some of that chaos. Um, and if you're a competitor, then this offers up a good opportunity now for that customer to have a review, start to look at the market, see what's happening. I think uh, you know the customers are well aware of uh, all these uh, mergers that are going on. So I think it it gives opportunity to us all to take advantage of the fact that you know all of this is going on. So uh, whether we're in the AML space or kind of the regulatory change market or, or uh, policy management, um, I think it's good. I, I think it shows that the the marketplace as a whole is maturing to the next level. I think it's good because it shows us that. Um, companies across the tier one and tier two space 
um, clearly are now more and more reliant upon these solutions. Um, and you've got billions of dollars pouring into um, continual development of the market. So I think it's, it's good. I mean, it's good for, for all of us, whether we're directly involved with those acquisitions or not, really. What was the stat earlier, Rob? I think in Europe, was it 20% growth year on year that's projected? That was, uh, that was the one that I read out, wasn't it, on the, um, and it was 20.3% year on year, uh, sorry, compound annual growth rate um, between now and 2025. Okay. And like we said at the time, rising tide, it's, you know, it's hard not to do well in that market if, if you're doing most things right. I, think, I don't know if anyone's got any forecast. I've never seen a forecast saying that compliance spend will shrink. Um, so until that happens, it's really hard to tell which firms are doing something really valuable versus a bit valuable and there, but there's enough market that everyone just grows regardless. I don't know if that sort of changes the angle of the question slightly, but it'd be interested in everyone's thoughts. Well, I mean, I think I think there are, I mean, you know, I think I think any any CFO or you know sort of senior senior individual within a large organization would 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 want to see compliance spend shrink. I mean, I think that they you know that would be a you know, uh, um, they would they ideally like to do what they need to do, uh, you know, for for less, um, you know. But but you know, they I don't I don't think they would um, do that at the expense of compliance. Uh, I don't think they would shrink the budget, you know, at the expense of compliance. But the the um, the, the only point I was going to make, I mean, David touched on there. You know, what what does this mean for people like us in sales? I mean, I think that's quite an interesting point. The only thing, I mean, here, here we are. You know, Tom, you were reeling off. Um, you know, uh, was it Forta you were talking about? Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're all here scratching our heads. Um, you know, am amongst your your vast listenership um, of, of this of this uh, of this marvelous uh, podcast series that you that you produced, I'm sure there will be other salespeople in the uh, in the reg tech space. And I mean, I suppose the only thing I would say is, you know, I think we all need to know about these things. You know, it's, it's sort of a reminder that we need to know what's going on with you know, the LSE and Refinitiv and what might that mean and where might that go and, you know, what are Relics up to and what's happening there and what are they looking at buying and what is happening with Moody's and RDC and, you know, what's Alex's grand plan for 2021? And, you know, we because that I think that all impacts, you know, going, going back to David's discussion of, you know, well, how do you engage with customers and the conversation that you have with them? Well, you, you've got to understand what they're doing already. Who are they using already? What are they doing? What What's the landscape around that? Is that about to change? Is it changing? Has it just changed? Do you know that? Can you, does that impact how you talk about what you're doing? Um, inform so, yourself. Inform yourself. And, and, Can and I make that a tagline for the podcast? A, when I'm is there a better place? <laughs> is there a better place to start? I don't, I don't. <laughs> well, Rob, I was about to say, you've just created a series for, for you and Tom of, you know, what's happening in RegTech this week. I, I think do you know, people. <laughs> it's just occurred to me the most important thing to discuss on this podcast in the in the in the the final episode of the year something that I've been meaning to bring up all along is the correct pronunciation of regtech and do we think it's regtech or as Alex says regtech. <laughs> 
It's reg tech. <laughs> it's it's, uh, tech, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a horrible phrase in which should be retired. Should be something else. Re well, reg tech should be. I don't. I don't think we're in the business of, of selling regulatory technology. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's where I've been going wrong all these years. Well, that's a freebie, Alex, and uh, hopefully it will bring you good uh, good luck next year. <laughs> Um, I think we're pretty much at the tail end of our allotted time, aren't we? So um, uh, any thoughts on reflecting on 2020? Any reflections as we come to, to the close of 2020? Any lessons learned that you'd like to share with the listenership? I think overall for everyone, it's been a, it's obviously been a difficult year, tough year, et cetera, et cetera. But overall for the reg tech market, um, I think, you know, based on some of the stats you've built off, I think experience that we've had at, at Clause Match, um, and I know that lots of other firms are, have kind of seen this as well, you know, we, we've actually done really, really well. And whilst at the beginning of, you know, lockdown, there was lots of concern as to, you know, whether budgets would still be around, projects would still be running, um, things continue to uh, roll along, uh, new projects came along. Um, so we've, We've had a great year, um, and I think going into 2021, we yeah we probably much expect much of the same because I think as we said earlier in the uh, in the discussion, we we seem to fare quite well. For, so the reg tech industry does really well whenever there's kind of chaos and uh, problems uh, that hits the financial services sector. So as you know, as tough as it is for others, um, we seem to do all right out of it. So. Every cloud and all that. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the only thing I I would say, Tom, I think is is and, we, and we've touched we've touched on it on it already. And again, these are all intertwined issues, um, you know, sort of bouncing off one another. But you know, being everybody being being remote, um, I think it has become even more important for organisations looking to break into what is a crowded and competitive and sometimes confusing sector is coming back to say, we, we mentioned it before, go to market strategy, you know, and, and all, and all of that encompasses what, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Who are you talking to? How are you taking that to market? Because that, you know, particularly sort of with through it, through a COVID lens, you know, needs to be spot on because, you know, you can't be out and about, you can't be, uh, you know, having those in you know face-to-face -face meetings where things perhaps get dropped into conversations, or you perhaps bump into people by accident, and conversations grow out of that organically. So, you know, as as a, as a reg tech as a, as a reg tech business, you know, do you know what you're doing, how you're doing it, who you're talking to, how are you taking your message out, and is that effective? Um, you know, I think that's you know that's something sort of personally I've kind of lived through a bit this year and, and, and seen seen some of the inside of. Yeah, probably just builds on top of both Rob and David have said, but to go from sort of maybe what, what we've learned from RegTech Legends, Tom, uh, <laughs> back to the part, <laughs> is to go back to that, um, saying I'd sort of lived already, but just how confused buyers are. Also, how confused many of the new sellers are, you know, not having some knowledge and the existing sellers, you know, that no one's got a monopoly on everything going on. Um, so it is that we've spoken about this many times, but I think it's been confirmed is that it's not enough in this space to be good at selling. You also need to know at least some of what's going on in 
in this whole compliance space, think crime space, whatever, re regulatory or however you say it, um, space. Otherwise, you're not going to go as far as you would maybe selling something else. Um, yeah, don't know if that's necessarily a new thing, but I think 2020 has probably highlighted it given what Rob's just said about remote working and, and needing to be more impactful without some of those lucky moments you can sometimes come across um, if you're just out and about. Very good. And I guess if I had one, one final uh, thought, it would be that with great change comes great opportunity. And what followed the 1918 Spanish flu um, pandemic was the roaring 20s. So uh, bring on 2021 and Happy New Year, everyone. Cheers, Tom. Happy New Year. Cheers, everybody. And to you, Tom. <laughs> All right. Thanks.